Please take your Bibles, if you uh, haven't already, and open them to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be looking specifically at verses 13, uh, 3 through 13 this morning, but just to give a little context, I'm going to actually back up and read from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through 13. This is God's Word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is God's Word. This morning we start a short two-part series that we're going to call Christ Our Hope. And this week, the first of two messages, the Father's love. If you'd like to take some notes, you can do so in the bulletin. There's some space for you there. And if you are interested in looking for an outline, we're going to see the Father's love demonstrated to us in this text in the way that he trains us, corrects us, and heals us. First of all, look at the way in which he trains us. The verse begins in chapter 12 and verse 3, with the word consider, and it's a word that originally meant to give deep thought to something and to reason up to a conclusion. In fact, uh, the English word logical is there in the Greek word. It means to think carefully about something, to um, analyze it. You might ask yourself, well, what exactly is he referring to? And if you'll notice, there is a word that would link it there with the previous verses of verses 1 and 2, and that is the whole point that the author is making, that the Lord Jesus Christ is both the founder and perfecter, the one who starts and the one who finishes, the one who creates and brings to fulfillment 
our salvation, our faith. We look to Him. He is the founder, the champion, the the one who began it all, and the perfecter. And this is very important because if it were not for Him completing the faith, if it were not for Him perfecting the faith, then it would be left to us to do it. And if it were left for us to do it, then we would be no doubt completely overwhelmed by guilt and shame and fear and uncertainty, and it would strip away from us any sense of assurance whatsoever, but in His kindness, the Lord has revealed to us that Christ has already run the race on our behalf. He has already finished the course. He has already won the prize, and He waits there at the other side of the finish line, to robe us in all of the glory that he has attained for himself, to grant us all of the prizes that he has secured by his righteousness, in order to allow us to share the podium with him, as it were, and to be celebrated even though we did nothing to deserve it. Because he came to fulfill every expectation of the law. He came to fulfill every bit of righteousness so that he could give it to us and not expect us to do it on our own. In fact, all we can bring is failure, and therefore, he died in order to pay the price for our failure that he might grant us the glory of his reward. Now, with that in mind, with that as the way that you consider what he has done, let's continue on with verse 3. How is it that our Father is training us? It says here that we are to consider him who endured from sinners this hostility. It meant the, uh, the curses that were brought upon him. It meant the insults, the accusations. He bore all of those things from a sinful world. He bore all of those things from individual sinners who hurled all kinds of unjust accusations against him. And remember, we're writing to a group of Hebrew Christians, maybe living in the city of Rome, who, who are really beginning to doubt whether or not Christianity is worth the cost. Now, they're debating whether or not they ought to go back to the... Uh, Jewish system, because at least there they weren't being persecuted. At least there they weren't having to bear up under this constant hostility. And the author says, remember the hostility that Christ endured. And if you do, then you will not grow weary, you will not be faint-hearted. The word grow weary there is translated totally spent. Have you ever had that experience where you're just totally spent? Uh, you come to the end of some physical exertion and you have nothing left. You just collapse in in this heap. Uh, There's nothing left. You've you've used up every ounce of your strength. And, And the author is saying here, you as a Christian don't need to get to the point where you are completely spent, nor do you have to get to the point where you are faint hearted, where your souls themselves are literally fainting. He says, instead, in your struggle against sin, in your struggle against those who are in this world that are against you, in your struggle against the very sin that still resides inside of you, you need to look to Christ, the one who completed it for you, gain your strength from him, and remember that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You see, you look back to Christ and you say, here's one who bore for me everything that I deserve to bear myself. Here is the one who received all of the insults and all of the accusations. And in his case, they were false. When they come at me, there's some grounds to them. Here is the one who is able to resist with absolute dignity everything that came against him from the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
Here's the one who took everything, all of the shame, and looking past it with his eyes fixed on the cross, went there in order that he might lay down his life and pay the debt so that I don't have to. Here is the one who is able to shed his own blood so that I don't have to shed mine. Now all of this requires a certain amount of training, a certain amount of um, work. And the work that is done here is a work that is brought upon us, a pain that is brought upon us, a training that is brought upon us. In fact, the word uh, that you'll see over and over again in this section is the word discipline. And just at the outset here, I want to clarify what that word really means, because I think when we talk about discipline, we so often assume punishment. When I use the word discipline, often you think about punishment. I'm being disciplined. But if we could broaden our definition of that a little bit, we have to remember that discipline would also encompass something that you do in order to maintain self-control. You show some discipline. It can also be used to describe becoming proficient at something. You work on your discipline. What discipline really means is that you have dedicated the best of your faculties towards doing something and doing it well. And in this regard, the Lord continues to discipline us. It's the word uh, paideia in the original. It's where we get the term pediatric from. It means to train up a child, to make a child ready for the world. Of all the mammals that come into the world, among the most helpless are human children. Among the most helpless, and for the longest period of time, are human children. They need to be trained, they need to be cared for, discipled. And here, the Lord is using that illustration to describe what we're like. We're like helpless children that constantly need Him to be providing for us and correcting us, giving us what we need withholding from us what would be difficult, what would be dangerous to us, and constantly coming alongside and saying, you need to, to work in this particular way in order that you might become strong. And so the author here is borrowing from this language and saying that one of the main ways in which our loving Father deals with us as Christians is that He trains us. Earlier this week, I was at a, at a hotel. I was walking... Uh, around the property, and I noticed that there was a, uh, a spa in this hotel, and um, on the window there is a list of all the things that you can uh, engage in at that spa, the, the different treatments that, that you could uh, pay for, uh, the different ways in which you can uh, relax, the ways in which the people who are working there at that spa can sort of uh, help you to rejuvenate and help you to uh, heal and Anyway, there's a whole long list of things. I'm talking about something I know nothing about, as you can tell, because I didn't go inside there. But right next to it, uh, there was a gym. I didn't go in there either. <laughs> but in there, you know, you look at it, and it's all just an assortment of, of instruments of, of torture. <laughs> and, and though they are right beside each other, they have absolutely different goals and, and intentions. Uh, you go into one in order to experience pleasure, you go into the other to experience pain. And I, and I got to thinking, you know, sometimes we, we view the Lord's uh, training of us as, as if it's, you know, meant to be a day spa and not a gym. Uh, we seem to forget that there's pain involved in being trained. There's pain involved in becoming better at something. 
And if your view of the Christian life is that you're just going to basically go in and and enjoy all of these treatments to sort of make your life better, that that's why you became a Christian in the first place, because you're under the impression that that God had promised to just make everything in your life wonderful, fix your marriage and make your children obey you and give you a better career that you find fulfilling and give you an easy life blessings all the time. If, if that's the impression, and, and then you get into it, and you begin to realize, no, there are some very serious and challenging aspects of what it means to follow the Lord, then you're really going to be disappointed. You're going to realize that you came into this with false expectations. What the author of the Hebrews is saying is that when you signed on to follow the Lord in this way, you didn't sign on to an easy life. In fact, you signed on to something that is going to require you to endure Over and over again, you'll notice in chapter 12, the word endure. Endurance is one of the characteristics of the Christian walk. And far be it from us to misunderstand endurance as punishment. Endurance is not punishment. Training is not punishment. When we use the word discipline, it should not be seen as something that is necessarily punitive, but here, something that is actually going to strengthen you. And so the author says, first and foremost, that when it comes to the fatherly love expressed to us by God, it is that of His training. He is a trainer. And He is able to do that for us because He poured out all of the punitive punishment upon somebody else already. The reason you don't have to resist to the point of shedding your blood is because somebody already did. Well, not only that, but he is also for us this loving father who corrects. Look at verses 5 to 11. It says this, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, you might be wondering, where does this uh, exhortation come from? And it comes from Proverbs chapter 3. If you'd like, you can turn there. Proverbs chapter 3 and verses 11 and 12. And again, just for some context, I'm going to read chapter 3, 1 to 12. But as I do that, I want you to again remember the nature of God's correction, even His discipline, even His punishment from time to time that comes into the life of a believer because you are His son or His daughter and He loves you. It must be remembered that it is never for the purpose of destroying you. The great Puritan writer Samuel Bolton put it this way, quote, it must always be remembered that although Christ has borne the punishment of sin, and although God has forgiven the saints for their sins, yet God may correct his people in a fatherly way for their sin. Christ endured the great shower of wrath the black and dismal hours of displeasure for sin, that which falls upon us is as a sun shower with the warmth of his love to make us fruitful and humble, unquote. What the author is saying is that the discipline that was poured out upon Christ on the cross is the blood-shedding wrath of God for sin, poured out upon Him completely in order to pay the debt in full for everyone who puts their faith in Christ. So that when the fatherly discipline falls upon us as His children, 
It is not a furious storm of wrath, but a sun shower that causes us to be more humble and to be more fruitful. If we can receive correction from the Lord with that attitude, wouldn't that completely change the way that we respond when things don't go our way? Listen carefully to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. The author says this, My son, do not forget my teachings, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves and as a father the son in whom he delights. Can you receive correction from the Lord as from a father who does it because he delights in you? It is only a child in which you delight that you discipline. The child that is not disciplined is not a child in which the parent delights. They don't delight in the child right now because they don't love the child enough to discipline the child, and they will not delight in the child later because children who are not disciplined do not delight their parents. Isn't it interesting, though, how when you look at this, it is an act of love. Discipline is an act of love. That when God does discipline us or correct us, he does it from the vantage point of demonstrating to us that we have not been forgotten or neglected. Consider this for a moment. If I were to tell you that my philosophy of parenting was to give my children everything they wanted, to never correct them, to never discipline them, to let them make all their own decisions, to let them go wherever they want, eat whatever they want, be with whomever they want for as long as they want, wherever they want, as often as they want, you would not consider me to be a loving parent at all. In fact, you would call child services because I would be abusing my children. There is no greater abuse to a child than to let them do whatever they want. Well, then, therefore, do not go and assign that level of callous indifference to God the Father, because He will never treat you that way. Because He loves you and because He delights in you and wishes to delight in you even more, He brings the necessary perfect correction into your life. Yes, there is training. Training makes you stronger, but there is also discipline. And there's no way to describe it to you except for what it says. It is flat-out correction, and sometimes we all need it. Amen? There's not one of us who is able to say, since the time of our conversion, that we have walked in absolute obedience to what the Lord expects of us. And so, he says from, quoting from Proverbs, notice it there in verse 5, my son, that section, do not regard lightly the discipline. Once again, our word paideia, it's that instruction that trains The same word that is used in Ephesians 6.4 to talk about what parents need to do. 
this instruction, this discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when He reproves you. For the Lord disciplines the one that He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. The correction of the Lord is done in two ways. Logically and physically. In verse 5 it says, Do not be weary when He reproves you. It's a word that means in the original a correction that is based on compelling evidence. One of the ways that God corrects you and I is that he provides us with compelling evidence, with truth, with what is logical. And what this means is that we are brought face to face with the reality of our own ignorance, of our own foolishness. This can come through reading scripture, it can come through a loving brother or sister in the congregation who reproves us, it can come from a parent It can come from a pastor. It can come from a myriad of different angles, but what it does is it corrects our mind, it corrects our thinking. And we have to remember that everything that is illogical is not necessarily irrational. Uh, There are times where we will do things that are irrational, and times we'll do things that are illogical. An illogical thing just means that there is no really good logical sense in what you're doing. You know, for some people, they go out and they enjoy certain activities that bring with it no particular logical sense. They just, they just like to go out and, and do it. They're just going to go and they are going to, let's say, climb a mountain. And, and if you love mountain climbing, hey, more power to you. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But you know, there's nothing necessarily logical in it. You don't say at the end of having climbed that mountain, that was a logical decision. That makes all the sense in the world for me to have gone and done that because you know, that mountain just, it has to be climbed. It's not logical. But it's not irrational. There's lots of good reasons for you to go and do that. You just might thoroughly enjoy it. I think about this when I look outside my backyard and we have this little garden. Gardening, for me, is utterly and completely illogical. It requires way too much time, way too much attention, way too much money, way too much frustration. All I end up doing is feeding the local rodents. It is much cheaper, a better use of my time and money to go down in the grocery store and buy the thing that I'm trying to grow in the backyard because even if I could grow it, it's ugly, it's terrible, it never turns out right, and there's never enough to feed my family. But is it irrational? No, not necessarily. Because maybe I just want to do it. Maybe I like going out there and getting my hands dirty and picking snails off of things. But what we have here is a very logical correction from our Father in heaven. You can't say to him, well, this makes no sense. Because by very nature of what he does when he corrects us, it makes all the sense in the universe. He will never bring into your life a correction that is illogical. Give him thanks for that ahead of time, even before you fully understand it. The reason why I believe the author begins with the training and the training of the mind is because when the mind is better trained, it can better understand the logical corrections that are being brought into the life of a believer by a loving father. But the correction is not only logical because the author goes on to say in verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The word chastise there. The word is actually the word to whip. It is the word translated elsewhere to scourge. Scourging is what would happen when a person was tied to a pole and they were beaten with a whip. There's a very painful physical element here in this discipline. 
And we know that the Lord, for His own purposes from time to time, if a child is erring significantly, may bring into his or her life physical punishment. And as we saw a few weeks ago in the case of the Corinthian believers, the ones who had made such a a wreck of the love feast, that he even brought in their specific case death to some of them because of their sin. And it says that he did that because he would not condemn them to hell as those who do not belong to him, but rather discipline them even to the point of death as an act of love from a heavenly father. So the discipline he brings into your life is both logical and physical. Verse 7 goes on to describe it in more detail. Notice he says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. It's a very important point that he's making. The enduring that's going on here, even in the life of these believers in, in possibly living in Rome, these Hebrew Christians, the reason that they're being disciplined is, is that they have to learn endurance and they're learning it through this constant training, through this constant correction through the constant pain that is brought into their lives in order to make them stronger. And the reason is that God is treating you, notice it, as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If God truly loves you, He will discipline. But if you receive the discipline and believe that it is illogical, or believe that it is a discipline that is more like wrath than correction, then you're going to misunderstand the entire point of it. So if there's anything I can leave you with this morning that I would just love to make sure is clear and well understood, it is this. The punishment that was supposed to fall on sinners fell instead upon Christ and was paid for in full when you put your faith in Him. The discipline that trains and builds up and corrects is what falls on you as a believer. So when you receive the correction from the Lord, it is because He has already poured out the wrath on Christ. When you receive the discipline from your heavenly Father, it's because He has already poured out the infinite wrath on Christ. The reason you don't get punished to the point of shedding your own blood is because Christ already shed His blood. And when the discipline does come to you, as it will, because God loves you, it is always logical and it is always perfectly given. He says here that, verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate and not sons. It's the only place in the New Testament where the word illegitimate shows up. You are illegitimate children if you don't receive discipline from the Lord. It means you're not one of His sons. And just a word here on the word sons It is a word that meant those who had been legally adopted. It applies to both men and women. It means that you are part of that family. You are a recipient of his inheritance. You share in his glory. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 10, 
We saw in Hebrews that it is through the work of Christ that God is bringing many sons to glory. He doesn't have to say sons and daughters because the readers would have understood the word sons there means that son that is brought into the family made the heir and the recipient of all that the Father has. Every one of you, if you're a Christian today, has a relationship to God as one of His sons. And therefore you are legitimate, therefore you are loved, therefore you are corrected, you are trained. Besides this, he said we have earthly fathers, they're the example for us, they're the ones who disciplined us. He says you have these fathers in the flesh as it were, fathers on earth. You were all raised by somebody who brought into your life the appropriate discipline and as a result you respected them. Now, You might not respect them at the time, but you will respect them later, I promise. You will respect them later. You will see that because they loved you, they corrected you. Because they loved you, they trained you. Because they loved you, they they healed you. And you will respect them. You will love them for it. And yet at the time, it doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to be appropriate. And in the same way, he says here that shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? In the same way that your Father in the flesh disciplined you and later you respected Him for it, your Father of spirits. What does that mean? And see the contrast? The Father of the flesh is your earthly Father. The Father of spirits is God. God fathered your soul. Your earthly Father was responsible for your physical body. God fathered your soul. And if your earthly father, who was responsible for you in a physical sense, trained you up and you respected him for it later, how much more will you respect your heavenly father, who gave birth to your eternal soul and trains you and disciplines you so that you can enjoy his glory forever? You see, a right perspective towards discipline is one that sees our Heavenly Father as disciplining us in such a way that we will enjoy His glory forever. Notice the contrast continues in verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time, literally for a few days, as it seemed best to them. Now I'm just going to pause there for a moment because there's a contrast being made. The, the author is admitting that our fleshly fathers, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, It was only for a few days. It was only while we were young. It was only, frankly, for many of us, while the children were still small enough that we could discipline them. Because as you know, before long, they begin to overshadow you physically. It's only for a few short years, a few short days. And furthermore, we do it with a certain degree of ignorance. It says here it was for a short term, uh, as it seemed best to them. The author is acknowledging that as parents, we don't always make the right decision when we're disciplining our children. Sometimes we discipline them too harshly and we cause them to lose heart. Sometimes we don't discipline them harshly enough and they don't take seriously what they have done. He says that we're, we're working on this as earthly parents and we're always sort of attempting to, to get it right. And it's only temporary. But he says, in contrast, notice, he... And the word disciplines us is not in the original, but it just says he, picking up on that same concept, does it for our good. It's always for our good. It's always for our good. I mean, no child, you know, goes to the parent and says after they were disciplined, 
you know what, Dad? I just wanted to let you know that discipline was perfect. I, I, I just don't really know what to say except thank you because you, you just, I mean, you nailed it. I mean, and me, but you, you got it right. I mean, it was just the right severity, uh, just the right amount, uh, just the right time. It was perfect, Dad. I don't really know what else to say except you have really, uh, come Father's Day this year, it's, there's going to be something special for you because I have just really never experienced such a wonderful disciplining session as I just had with you now. You don't get that ever. And if you do, please tell me how it is that you have learned to discipline your children that way. It always seems like it's too much. It always seems like it's too long. And we know that from an earthly perspective because we have our own children. But imagine how many times we turn that back against our Heavenly Father and we say, Lord, this is too much and it's too long. Have you ever been in a situation where you've said that, thought that? Lord, this is too much and it's too long. Why does the author keep emphasizing the word endurance? Because the nature of the Christian life is endurance. It's endurance because it often seems too hard. And it's endurance because it often seems too long. And the only hope you have is not looking at your circumstances and drawing some sort of comfort from how you think it's going to end but by looking to God and saying that whatever comes into my life is perfectly logical, it's perfectly measured out, and it is always for my good because he genuinely does love me and he is creating for me and in me a character that he will delight in one day in glory forever. And whatever he brings into my life is never going to crush me or destroy me because the very wrath of God that will crush and will destroy has already been poured out upon his own son who was perfect and never deserved it. If anyone didn't deserve punishment, if anyone was punished too hard, if anyone was punished too long, it was Christ and God the Father, because of his love for you and for me, saw fit to pour out his holy wrath on one who didn't deserve it so that he could pour out his infinite blessings upon others who didn't deserve it. And so the endurance that I have to face and that you have to face is an endurance with respect to the discipline that is being brought into our lives to train us as children who are loved and legitimate in order that it would make us stronger, that it would correct us when we are wrong, and that as we'll see in a moment, it'll heal us when we're broken. Our Heavenly Father does it in a way that is good and in order that we might share his holiness. And the author is not unaware of the objections that are being raised in your mind right now as you hear this text because he interjects this statement in verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but in the strongest contrast possible in the language, but Later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Uh, that word for righteousness, you could translate that even the justification, the, the peaceful fruit of your justification, of your salvation, is 
demonstrated and seen as a result of the discipline that comes into your life, which is always necessary because though you have been born again, though you're a new creature, you still inhabit a sinful, fallen, cursed flesh. And it will be at war with your spirit until you take your last breath. But that justification, that newness of life that is inside of you bears fruit, the author says. And it's a fruit that is peaceful. It is a fruit that is good. It's a fruit that you can be thankful for as you walk in holiness and obedience by the power of the Spirit. But it doesn't happen immediately. In fact, it says here that it is for those who have been trained. This literally is the word we get gym from. This is the word gymnazo. It is that place that you go in in order to to lift and to sweat and to work in order that as those muscles are are torn down that they will heal stronger and bigger. I mean, isn't it true that the most painful and the most difficult reps at the end of the set are the ones that are doing the most good for the body? That the most painful miles at the end of the run are the ones that are making the body stronger. That ironically, you think you are getting weaker and weaker and weaker as you approach that limit of your physical ability. And in reality, you're getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And if that applies physically, brothers and sisters, to simply working out, how much more so will it apply to us spiritually in the daily workout that is the Christian life? And can I just hasten to add something? It doesn't say work really hard in your own strength in order to impress God with how well you're doing. It says God is working you beyond your strength because of what He is doing. The work that is done is not a work that you do in order to earn His favor. The work that is done is a work that He imposes on you for your good. He is that trainer who you actually pay money to in order to inflict pain upon you. He is that coach. He is that person who works with you in order to put you through these painful cycles, in order to withhold from you the things that you really want. You want more than anything to eat that food. And that trainer says no. You want more than anything to sleep in, and the trainer says, no, get up. You want more than anything not to lift that weight, and the trainer says, lift it. You want more than anything not to run that mile, but the trainer says, run it. All the while, while you're doing those things, whether it's voluntarily not doing something or involuntarily doing something, you are doing it ultimately for your own good, not as a way to impress the trainer. So, friends, listen. The endurance that we endure is not one of punishment because of our weakness. It is one of training because of our weakness. So in the end, you won't be broken, but will be strong. So not only is the loving Father the one who trains us and the one who corrects us, both the logical and the physical, but also He is the one who heals us. Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. This isn't saying, well, now pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. He's saying, strengthen, lift up, 
by doing this, by remaining under it, by staying under the weight. He's not saying do this of your own accord or of your own strength. He's not talking about your posture here. It's not like when you were growing up and your parents would say, now sit up straight. Maybe people still say that and you're an adult. Sit up straight. Don't slouch. He's saying instead, do what needs to be done in order to gain the strength. Do what needs to be done in order to lift yourself up and make straight the paths of your feet. Not only do you stand, not only do you strengthen, but you also straighten this way. Make straight your path so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. If you go back into the passage we read earlier that the author quoted from Proverbs chapter 3, there is that famous verse about how we have to trust the Lord and He will make our paths straight. It wasn't only the quote, but it's the whole idea of this chapter is being borrowed from the language in Proverbs chapter 3. There is only one way to accomplish this, and that is to trust the Lord, the great physician, to do it for you. He is the one who will give you the way to lift your drooping hands. The imagery there is that you're, you're so weak you can't even pick up your own arms. You're just kind of limp. And to straighten your weak knees, the idea is that you're, you're crawling because your legs are not strong enough to stand and carry you. To make straight the paths of your feet, you're so ignorant and clueless that you're, you're wandering all over the place. Now, we understand all of these things. We've had moments of weakness. We've had moments of fatigue. We've had moments of of a lack of mental clarity. You get lost. You can't find your way home. You depend upon your phone to navigate everywhere. You reach a certain age where you walk into a room and you stand there absolutely perplexed as to why it is you came in there in the first place. You find yourself desperately trying to search the catalog of your brain to remember what it is that might be in this room that you came in to find. There's nothing clear about it. And he says to you in a spiritual sense, there's going to be these moments where there's utter weakness, utter confusion, and yet you rest again in his perfect healing. Obey him and do what he tells you to do in order that you might be healed. The great physician, you might be strengthened and you might get the clarity you need in order to live the life that brings him honor and glory. That way, what is lame is not going to be put out of joint, not going to be broken because of collapse, but rather it will be healed. So he is the one who trains, he is the one who corrects, he is the one who heals. There are two outcomes for this, just go back and notice them. There are two clauses that tell you what this will result in, and they are uh, revealed to us with the word so that. So go back to verse 3. Why do we consider him who endured so that, number one, you may not grow weary or faint-hearted? If you're weary or faint-hearted today, I want this to be a word of encouragement to you. That the very weight under which you are laboring is the weight that is making you stronger. That the very trial that you're enduring is the trial that is making you stronger. As long as, and here's the answer, you're looking to Christ and not to yourself. What the author is saying is that every weight that we endure is making us stronger as long as we are considering Him who is the author and finisher of our faith. If your eyes are off of Him and onto yourself, then you're not going to be able to enjoy the strengthening effect of that trial. 
But if your eyes are on him, you can say, I trust you and I know this is for my good. And the second one comes to us here at the end in verse 13, so that again, what is lame will not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So by fixing our eyes on him, we endure in such a way that we are able to not grow weary or faint-hearted, and we endure in such a way that actually makes what is lame healed. He causes us to stand, gives us strength, and makes straight our paths. And this is done because we have a loving Heavenly Father who has already poured out every negative consequence of sin upon His own Son for those who have put their faith in Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this wonderful truth this morning that You, our hope, have given us everything that we need in Christ. That He has not only begun and authored the faith, but He has brought it to completion. He lived the life that we could never live, and He died the death that we could never die in order that He could pay the price that we could never pay and give us the glory we could never deserve. He is the one that we look to so that as we endure day by day, we can see ourselves as being strengthened and not punished. That as you correct us, it is not with your wrath, but rather with your fatherly discipline for no other reason except that we are your sons and you love us and you want to delight in us and we want to delight in the fruit of righteousness that comes from obeying you and that all of it leads to our healing. We don't want to be broken. We don't want to be lame. We don't want to be hunched over and exhausted. We want to be healed and strengthened. And so we come to you and say, Lord, do whatever it takes in order to accomplish that in our lives for our own good, but ultimately for your own glory. And so now as we turn our attention to sing praises to you for the work that you are doing in our own lives, may it come from hearts that have been been reminded and renewed once again that everything that we bear, we bear because the Father in heaven who loves us is pouring it upon us for our good. For it's your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.